Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I hope everyone had a safe and happy New Year's Eve at home. And so before I get started with stories tonight, I do want to note uh, two different things. First, if you haven't already heard, the new strain of COVID-19 first detected in England that we uh, mentioned last week. It has now been identified in the United States, in Colorado, and um, that person hasn't traveled, so they must have gotten the, um, they must have picked up that strain locally. Now, again, it is not a cause for panic, but it is a reminder to stay vigilant and continue to practice mask wearing, social distancing, and good hygiene. And in a second piece of update news, given the collapse of the Arecibo radio telescope, China has offered to open up access to the 500-meter Aperture Spherical Telescope, or FAST, which actually eclipsed Arecibo as the world's largest telescope when it was completed in 2016. FAST is not only the largest telescope now available, but it is three times more sensitive than Arecibo was, and it is surrounded by a three-mile radio silence zone. So that's good news. Though, again, uh, we talk about this with the usual caveat that this is obviously colored by the need for China to work on its public image as it tarnishes itself in other areas. Okay, let us get started with some stories for the evening. Tonight, we're going to do a sort of a kind of a end of the year show, wherein I've pulled some stories that I initially looked at during the year and just never managed to fit into another program. So let's start off strong, keeping in the festive mood, and let's talk about why adding salt to sweets makes them taste sweeter. Now, my mom always put salt on watermelon when I was growing up, probably still does, honestly. And of course, I love a good salted caramel. But just what is it about sodium that enhances the sweet taste of glucose? Taste in general is a combination of taste receptors in the tongue, columnar taste receptors bundled together like a bunch of bananas, and forming taste buds combined with receptors for smell. Sweet tastes are detected by a family of receptors called T1R. Scientists used to believe that if you knocked out T1R genes, you would no longer be able to taste sweet things, either from natural or artificial sweeteners. But in 2003, researchers working with genetically modified mice who lacked T1R genes found that they still liked sugar glucose, suggesting that T1R was not all there was to the ability to detect sweet tastes, at least in mice, and perhaps also in humans. Physiologist Keiko Yasumatsu of Tokyo Dental Junior College and colleagues 
wanted to find out what else could be allowing these mice to detect sweetness. They turned to a protein that pairs with glucose in other parts of the body, sodium glucose co-transporter 1, or SGLT1. In the kidneys and intestines, SGLT1 uses sodium as a transport method to move glucose into the cells to provide energy. They found that the protein is also found in sweet responsive taste cells. In order to further explore the connection, the researchers applied a solution of glucose and salt to the tongues of unconscious T1R mice and recorded the way the nerves associated the taste cells responded. Associated with the taste cells, cells responded. The salt seemed to make a crucial difference. Rodents who received the salty mixture had a more rapid nerve response than those who only received glucose. In addition, when conscious, the mice also preferred a mixture of glucose and salt. But interestingly, only glucose and salt. The response did not register when using sweeteners like saccharin. To strengthen the case, the researchers found that a compound known to inhibit SGLT1 appears to prevent the response to glucose as well. The researchers believe there are three types of sweet-sensitive taste cells, two that use either T1R or SGLT1 and help distinguish between natural and artificial sweeteners, and a third that also detects fatty acids and umami flavors, which they suggest helps detect calorie-rich foods. The evidence now that an SGTL contributes to detection of sweeteners by the taste system is irrefutable, notes Emily Lyman, a neurobiologist at the University of Southern California who was not involved in the study. We can now set aside the question of if and ask how. Okay, let's switch gears now and talk about the physics of sandcastles. So it turns out that the ideal ratio of water to sand in order to build an elaborate and stable sandcastle or sand sculpture is one bucket of water to every eight pails of sand, according to research. And while the basic physics is well understood, there's still a lot to learn about the various forces at play in this seemingly simple combination. The, the mathematics that describe the interaction is called the Kelvin equation, and it was first formulated, uh, funnily enough, <laughs> by Sir William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, in 1871. Nobel laureate Andre Geim's laboratory at the University of Manchester in England has cracked the problem of whether the equation works at the nanoscale. The basic idea of a sandcastle is that the water acts like glue, sticking the grains of sand together via capillary forces. In 2008, physicists used X-ray microtomography to get 3D pictures of wet glass beads of similar shape and size to grains of sand. They were able to see liquid capillary bridges form when adding water to dry beads. Adding more water caused the bridges to grow larger and caused the bead surfaces to begin to come into contact with more water, increasing the binding effect. But the increased binding effect was cancelled out because of the decrease of the capillary forces 
as the bridge structure expanded. Thus, as the moisture content changes, the overall forces binding the beads together did not change. Daniel Bonn, a physicist at the University of Amsterdam who is known for his work with sand, compares the effect to that of soap bubbles, which form a spherical shape because that shape has the least amount of surface area. Likewise, a small amount of water between two sand grains forms a small liquid bridge that minimizes the surface area between the water and the air, he told Vice in 2015. If one then moves one grain with respect to the other, one automatically creates surface area. This costs energy, and therefore there will be a resistance to deformation. Now, this capillary action is not only applicable to sandcastles. Water vapor condenses from ambient air spontaneously inside porous materials and between touching surfaces. And this action is described by the Kelvin equation, which was again thought to only work on the macroscopic level, though it had already been found held had already been found to hold even down to the 10 nanometer scale. Gein's team managed to devise an experiment that surprisingly determined that the equation holds even at the smallest scale. This came as a big surprise. I expected a complete breakdown of conventional physics, said co-author Qian Yang. The old equation turned out to work well. A bit disappointing, but also exciting to finally solve the century-old mystery. So we can relax. All those numerous condensation effects and related properties are now backed by hard evidence rather than a hunch that it seemed to work, so therefore it should be okay to use the equation. Now, typically, capillary condensation happens at humidity levels between 30 and 50 percent. But as you get down to the molecular scale, at below one nanometer, only one or two layers of water would be able to fit between surfaces, as a water molecule is around 0.3 nanometers in diameter. Now, it's important to know how water interacts at this scale for a myriad of industrial reasons, such as in microelectronics, pharmaceutical manufacture, and food processing. Geim and his colleagues were able to use the somewhat magical material graphene to conduct practical experiments. Geim actually won the 2010 Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on graphene. Working with Konstantin Novoselov, also at Manchester, he developed a novel way of isolating graphene from graphite using scotch tape. Graphene is a carbon material that is notable for being only one atom thick. The current work involved constructing molecular, molecular scale capillaries by layering atom-thin crystals of mica and graphite on top of one another, with narrow strips of graphene in between each layer to act as a spacer. This allowed them to build capillaries of different heights, including some which were only one atom high, enough to fit just one layer of water molecules. Again, to their surprise, they found that the Kelvin equation held up, despite the assumption that water molecules should act differently at such small scales. Because we know the smaller you get, the more weird things happen. Good theory often works beyond its applicab 
its applicability limits, said Gein. Lord Kelvin was a remarkable scientist, making many discoveries, but even he would surely be surprised to find that his theory, originally considered considering millimeter-sized tubes, holds even at the one-atom scale. In fact, in his seminal paper, Kelvin commented about exactly this impossibility. So our work has proved him both right and wrong at the same time, which is pretty fantastic. Um, I'm always up for a story about something that was a mystery for a really long time, and then people have finally figured it out. And there's lots of that in physics, especially, where there are still plenty of equations that are not proven yet, and plenty of things that haven't been pulled together. And so obviously there is the uh, continuing uh, exploration of ways in which to find a unifying theory of uh, general and quantum physics. And so it's very interesting to see these kinds of um, stories where we're learning that something that we thought was one way actually turns out to be that way, or in fact doesn't turn out to be that way, but it turns out to be this other way. Um, so let's move on, though. And this story actually, honestly, it made me laugh out loud the first time I read about it. I mean, it's actually pretty important. Uh, it's a story about making sure that you have all your facts before you make a pronouncement. Uh, but it still makes me giggle and reminds me of the old adage uh, about that if you don't know what something is in archaeology, then you refer to it as being associated with ritual. And so it turns out that a famous tree of life found in Chaco Canyon may have been nothing more than a piece of discarded or never used lumber. The ponderosa pine was found in the center of Chaco Canyon and was dubbed the plaza tree. It was once thought to symbolize life and the center of the world for the ancient Puebloan city. It was thought to have been a living tree, which would have represented the living, quote, center of the world for the people of Pueblo Bonita, the largest of the so-called great houses, which was occupied between 850 and 1150 CE. It was even speculated that it might have been at the center of a religious cult. And there's actually a picture of the tree growing in the plaza in a brochure from the National Park Service. But new research suggests it may have been nothing more than a log. No one has bothered to move for the last 800 years. I think the tree was dead when it was transported into the canyon, said study lead researcher Chris Geinerman an assistant research scientist who studies ancient trees at the University of Arizona in Tucson. The researchers discovered that the tree was most likely cut down more than 50 miles away and hauled back to the area. They found no evidence of ritual use. They suggest that it might have been a pole or a beam for a house or even just firewood. I actually have no idea whether it did, does, or ever had religious significance, Garnerman told Life Science in an email. I don't know what it was used for or why it was located in the plaza where it was found. Refreshingly uh, honest there. Three aspects of the tree were investigated. Documents about the discovery of the 20-foot-long trunk in 1924, 
strontium isotope levels within the samples of its wood, which would help track it to where it would have grown initially, and the width of its tree rings, which would chronicle seasonal growth. Now, the team would have liked to compare the tree rings of other ancient trees, but none were available, so they used tree rings from modern trees in order to match the tree's likely location based on the climate of the particular areas. They found that the strontium and tree ring widths did not match ponderosa pine trees growing around Chaco Canyon, but rather those in the Chusca Mountains, around 50 miles away. This area, apparently, also happens to be the primary source for architectural wood used to construct Pueblo Bonito and other Chaco great houses, Guiderman said. As for the historical records, archaeologist Neil Judd of the Smithsonian Institute noted initially that he failed to find any sign of deep roots from the tree in the plaza and initially agreed that it hadn't been growing there. But in the 1950s, Judd's interpretation had shifted, and he described it as the last living remnant of an ancient forest that once existed at Chaco Canyon. It may have been reinterpreted in light of the only other log region long found in the region, a 32-foot-long white fir trunk at the Kitesiel Cliff Dwelling in Arizona, discovered in the 1890s. So he ended up writing in the 50s, it was a puzzling discover, discovery, one of a kind, really. It served as evidence for an early idea that Chaco Canyon was heavily forested before the great houses were constructed, and that the hundreds of thousands of beams came from that local forest. However, again, modern research has found that the uh, logs were often imported from dozens of miles away, and hundreds of thousands of timbers uh, were used in the construction of these monumental dwellings. Now, the researchers investigated several theories of how the log may have been used, including that it might have served as a gnomon of an ancient sundial, though they cannot confirm that it was long enough to serve this purpose. It may also have served as an upright pole for ceremonies or festivals. Some Native American ceremonies include pole climbing, which may have originated in Mesoamerica. And pine tree logs and branches are also still used in some modern Puebloan ceremonies. But again, this is an educated guess. It might have been a log staged for construction of a new room or to replace a damaged beam in an existing room, they wrote. It could have been a bench or entitled for fuel wood. But what we do know now is that it was not a living tree growing in the square, and it doesn't represent the last remnants of some forest that was cut down in order to create the Pueblo. And we can see how careful interpretation must be employed and assumptions challenged when explaining evidence of the past. And so, again, this is really important because... It's really easy to imbue things with um, great meaning. Humans are really good at that. Um, you know, think of the way that we name our inanimate objects and the way we anthropomorphize animals and things like that. Um, you know, making meaning is a very, very human thing to do. And so when you see a giant log sitting in the middle of an archaeological site, you immediately want to find a reason for why it's there. And you want to be able to give an explanation 
for this kind of um, object. And sometimes that can lead you astray because sometimes people just leave things. <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's hard to believe, but just think about it. I mean, think about your local abandoned lot. Um, if you've, or, I mean, there aren't that many around here necessarily, but, um, think about an abandoned lot and how many things are just kind of left in those places. Um, and I think it's a really interesting idea to think about how that sort of uh, conglomeration would be interpreted in the future. And, you know, a lot of those places are right in the center of bustling cities. Um, and so it's a really interesting thought to um, kind of conjecture about how something as simple as a log could be interpreted in many different ways. Um, it could even be considered to have been something that grew in this space when all along it was just a log and it was just something that, you know, it might've been a place, it might've been a bench, uh, where people just sat down to take a rest. Um, and I think that's a really interesting, uh, story and really interesting to think about how that plays out in, um, archaeological discoveries and interpretation. And also, uh, just a shout out to the Puebloans, uh, who were amazing. Um, and the ancient Puebloans, I should say, um, who, not that the modern day Puebloans, uh, don't deserve a shout out, but, uh, you know, the Chaco Canyon, uh, dwellings are really an amazing feat of engineering. And, um, you know, as I noted, you know, tens of thousands of logs moved into that area in order to build up those um, amazing dwellings. And again, we so often think more of uh, South America and uh, other continents when we think of monumental building and people who had advanced physical uh, material cultures. And we definitely had people with amazing material cultures in the Americas uh, and in North America here. Um, but a lot of it was either abandoned due to climate change or the people uh, got uh, European diseases through trade routes from South America before Americans even got here. I mean, before uh, settlers even got here. And so a lot of people had already disappeared from the land by the time settlers got here. And so I think that that's something that's really pervasive as to why we think that America was this vast, empty wasteland just waiting to be, or wild land just waiting to be populated because the people had already been uh, decimated and more than decimated before uh, settlers got here. And I just always like to remind that people of that every once in a while, because it's, I think it's really important to remember that we actually do have places here that have amazing material culture. And uh, so, for instance, uh, Cahokia, they're still finding amazing things at Cahokia. And yeah, they're a little bit further forward in time 
than, say, ancient ruins in, uh, you know, the Mediterranean. But again, people got to the Americas later and the Americas didn't have the same kinds of uh, easy places in a lot of the continent that uh, the Mediterranean is kind of custom built for uh, creating civilization. It's kind of got the perfect weather and it's got a lot of uh, rivers and it's got the Med itself and it's very set up for people to be able to actually uh, build civilizations there and everywhere else is a little bit harder. Okay, well, enough about that. <laughs> Let us actually talk about one more archaeology uh, story. Uh, this is actually in the Mediterranean area, this other side of the Atlantic. So let's talk about a newly excavated fast food stand in Pompeii. Called Thermopylium, or alternatively Taberna, Caupana, or Papina, these establishments often featured roadside counters built around vessels to hold the foods on offer. This particular Thermopylium featured vivid frescoes of both foodstuffs and artistic scenes. The remains of foodstuffs, including animal bones, match some of the paintings on the counter, Virginia Campbell, an ancient historian and archaeologist at the Open University of England, wrote. There has always been speculation that the food matches what was consumed, but this is unequivocal proof in one shop. Now, the shop is located in Pompeii's Reggio V area, which has not been excavated in the past and thus is allowing archaeologists to use modern techniques to discover new finds. We are getting information we've never had before all at once, rather than going back over old and sometimes not well-recorded materials and attempting to apply new techniques, sometimes with poor results, Campbell wrote. A previous find in the area was a charcoal scrawl preserved in the region's House of the Garden, which mentions October 17, a date two months after the accepted eruption date of August 24, 79 CE, which suggests the date may have to yet be revised. The stall was first excavated in 2019 and has turned up culinary items such as amphorae, the ubiquitous tall two-handled containers mainly used for wine and olive oil, as well as flasks and the remains of duck, swine, goat, fish, land snail, and bean residue at the bottom of a dolium, one of the large jars that were embedded in the counter. They also discovered human and dog remains. Now, the counter is painted with a border of mustard yellow, bright, bright mustard yellow, and features paintings of a large black dog on a leash, a brown rooster, two dressed mallard ducks, and a blue seahorse carrying a nereid. The chicken and ducks most likely advertised the wares found at the shop, while the others were typical of the highly decorated nature of the city. It's unique for its counter shape, which had three parts. Most were simply a simple uh, straight line or an L shape, as well as the size of those dolia. So it had really large jars built into the, um, into the counter. It's also newly excavated, and the frescoes are, again, quite vivid without the fading and degradation that much of Pompeii has weathered in the last century or more. And in fact, the last Thermopylae 
was actually excavated back 50 years ago. They're an invention of the early 1st century. Stephen Ellis, an archaeologist at the University of Cincinnati and author of The Roman Retail Revolution, which discusses the 163 previously excavated Thermopylae, noted, And we find so many of them at Pompeii, not just because Pompeii was destroyed overnight, but because Pompeii was a city of the 1st century, the halicon of this urban form of retail sale. Now, one of the human remains found belongs to that of a person who is estimated to have been at least 50 years old and unfortunately sleeping at the time of death, based on nail and wood residue found beneath the the remains. Unfortunately, it's hard to know for sure, as 17th century looters dug tunnels that disrupted the site to some extent. The remains of another victim were found inside a dolium, possibly placed there by those looters. A small lapdog's remain, lapdog's remains were also discovered. Now the counter even features a bit of the infamous Roman graffiti, saying something that I I can't even share with you this early in the evening. And so uh, Pompeii, of course, was not alone, but is very famous for its uh, graffiti. All of Roman um, remains are very well known for having. Uh, lots of graffiti on them. And so, yeah, um, while you're thinking about that, we're going to take a short break and do some uh, show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to actually go back to uh, physics and this time astronomy and talk about slime molds in relation to physics and astronomy. So ruminate on that for a moment. (laughs) You are listening to Evidence Based radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. 
the Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back, and you are uh, still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Let's move on now to talk about, as mentioned, slime molds. Back in March, researchers at the University of California, Santa Cruz, used slime mold growth patterns as a way to model the cosmic web. Now, the cosmic web is the underlying structure of the universe, a vast network of filaments surrounded by huge voids. And so, most of the material in this web is dark matter, with a bit of diffuse and distant gas. We don't think the universe was created by a giant slime mold, co-author Joseph Burchett uh, told Ars Technica, though this would be a pretty neat creation story, not gonna lie. This really comes down to the similarities of the products of these two very disparate processes. At the end of the day, the similarities arise in the optimality of nature. Optimality. I don't think I've ever used that word before. (laughs) The cosmic web is the result of processes shortly after the Big Bang, which essentially explains why there is something rather than nothing in the universe. When the Big Bang occurred, there was a sudden expansion of both matter and antimatter. The fact that a tiny bit of matter survived the subsequent perannihilations is why we, and the universe as a whole, are here. And that matter was not distributed evenly, but rather in clumps, which again is why we're here, because those clumps drew more matter to them and began to form the structure of the universe. Now, as an aside, the science fiction idea of matter and antimatter coming into contact to create a giant explosion is complete fiction. Matter and antimatter routinely come into contact in the vacuum. They are momentar- they momentarily come into existence as pairs and quickly annihilate one another and return that energy to the vacuum. That is what uh, quantum flux is. If you've ever heard the term quantum flux, that's basically what that is. And if you want to get a great explainer of these sorts of processes, which I'm not really talking about too much tonight, there is a documentary featuring Professor Jim Al-Khalali called Everything and Nothing, and it features some of the best most 
easily understood examples of how physics works and how we learned about the structure of the universe. I can't recommend it more. But getting back to the slime molds, the work began as an archival data analysis project funded by the Hubble Space Telescope in order to study the distribution of gas within the cosmic web, which in turn provides the raw material for galaxy formation. While the nodes of the web are fairly easy to spot, as they have halos of dark matter surrounding them, the connecting threads have proved more difficult to model or image. Burchette initially tried to use background quasars to illuminate the foreground gas, but found it difficult to extract the necessary information from large, larger sets of observational data. The problem you inevitably encounter is, where do I draw the cosmic web, he said, because... The real backbone of the cosmic web is dark matter. The diffuse gas that's permeating the dark matter structure is really the only way we have of detecting the matter. And so Burchett found that the best way to visualize the threads was using those quasars. But again, even that proved hard. Even then, you have to detect the gas as a shadow you see in the background's quasar light, he said. And so Burchett basically... Uh, started a conversation on what he was working on with a fellow UCSC postdoc uh, named Oscar Ellick, which led him to Ellick's mentor, Angus Forbes, who in turn told him about the work of a Berlin-based media artist, Sage Jensen, who used computer simulations of slime mold growth to create art. Ellick and a programmer friend then created a 3D version of the simulation for slime mold growth called the Monte Carlo Fisarum Machine, or the MCPM, and fed it a dataset of 37,000 galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, or SDSS. Initially skeptical, Burchett found that the results actually were really impressive. Visually, it's really striking, he notes. You can intuit where filament should be if you just look at a map of galaxies in the sky, and the slime mold model fits that intuition very well. But of course, it's important not to read too much into this. Again, humans are always trying to find meaning in things. Uh, it's not as if someone uh, has proven that there is a hard mathematical reason why the cosmic web should be an optimal transport network, which is what slime molds create, Alec explained. It's just that the two systems share enough similarities that one can be used to model the other. The team then set about testing whether their model actually held up to the data or just looked right. They built a catalog of dark matter halos based on data from more conventional simulations and then ran the algorithm to reconstruct the web of filaments connecting those nodes. The results from the slime mold model strongly resembled those from the original cosmological simulations. After refi further refining the model, they also compared the slime mold model's predictions of gas densities in the intergalactic medium to data on star formation in galaxies from the SDSS. They then further tested the model by comparing it to UV data of 350 quasars from the Hubble's Cosmic Origins spectrograph. We knew where the filaments of the cosmic web should be thanks to the slime mold, so we could go and do the archived 
we could go to the archived Hubble Spectra for the quasars that probe that space and look for the signatures of the gas, said Burchett. Wherever we saw a filament in our model, the Hubble Spectra showed a gas signal, and the signal got stronger toward the middle of the filaments where the gas should be the densest. And so Burchett has now turned to looking at the galaxies themselves and how well their properties correlate to their location within the cosmic web. Alec, for his part, is developing the MCMP as a structure finder and is hoping to expand its usage to bioprinting and other projects. We see this as the tip of the iceberg of what we can do scientifically, said Burchett. This is splitting off all sorts of cool applications, both within and outside of astrophysics. And so, of course, slime molds continue to be amazing. Uh, and to aid us in our pursuits of understanding the underlying nature of the universe, because everything is fantastic. Uh, no, um, though it does tickle me that something as uh, basic as tiny little uh, colonial amoebas can be uh, something that can help us understand the underlying structure of the universe. Um, I definitely think that is a very uh, cool thing, and I definitely um, enjoy the fact that slime molds are something that are able to do all of these complex things, because of course, I'm always interested in uh, how animals and plants even and other um, parts of nature are able to engage in what seems like cognition. And obviously, in some cases, it's not cognition. Um, and But it feels like cognition to us, and it's really interesting. Um, I just always find it fascinating to see how different... Um, the different ways in which nature has solved problems, and especially how sometimes it solves the same problem... Uh, in the same way across really disparate species. That's always something I'm interested in. Okay, let us wrap up tonight's uh, potpourri of In Case You Missed It stories with a couple of stories about animals. So we're going to start out with the duck-billed platypus, because of course we are. <laughs> and of course, it is a weird animal. It's a monotreme, or egg-laying mammal, one of only two left on the planet, the other being echidnas. The males have venomous spurs, which apparently hurt very bad if you're unlucky enough to encounter one in the wild and actually and accidentally get stabbed. Uh, some of the stories about having had that happen, it sounds like it's a really bad day. Um, it won't kill you, but it will hurt like heck. Um, and... They're actually so weird, and I know I've mentioned this before, but it always tickles me. They're so weird that they were legitimately considered a hoax when the first specimens were shipped to Europe. Scholars thought someone had attached the duck of uh, the bill of a duck to a mole's body. And in fact, their name, their scientific name, Ornithorhychus anatinus, actually means bird-snouted flat foot. <laughs> 
And so, yeah, they're pretty weird. And now we know they're even weirder. It turns out that the humble platypus is also biofluorescent. Its fur glows blue and green under ultraviolet light. Biofluorescence is rare in mammals and hadn't been observed previously in monotremes. Not that there's a lot of them to look at. (laughs) The only two known species to have biofluorescence uh, are the flying squirrel and opossums. And so study co-author Allison Kohler, a doctoral candidate in the Texas A&M University Wildlife and Fisheries Department in College Station, Texas, had previously tested and found that all three species of North American flying squirrels glow bright pink, apparently, under ultraviolet light. And so Kohler's team were testing flying squirrel museum specimens and decided to explore if other mammals shared the trait. We were preparing for our second day at the Field Museum in Chicago to document biofluorescence in New World flying squirrels, and I started to wonder how broadly distributed this trait might be within the animal kingdom, said Eric Olson, co-author of the new study and an associate professor of natural resources at Northland College. Platypuses are active at night and during twilight in the same way as flying squirrels, which suggests that they might share this trait. Plus, who doesn't want to examine a platypus specimen, he added, and I wholeheartedly agree. Um, And apparently they did as well. We all agreed that we should explore this idea. Um, I can totally see that meaning. (laughs) Someone was like, maybe we should look at the platypus. And everyone was like, yes, yes, let us look at the platypus. I think that is a fantastic idea. (laughs) And so the fluorescent glow was discovered through two specimens, one male and one female from Tasmania in Australia at the Field Museum, and both displayed a glow. A third specimen from the University of Nebraska State Museum in Lincoln, a male collected in New South Wales, also glowed green in UV light. Now, there wasn't a huge amount of sexual dimorphism in the specimen, suggesting that this is not a trait involved in mating. And in fact, platypuses don't use their sight much at all. They rely more on touch and sound and through electrostimulation via their beak. Another weird property of these animals. They basically have kind of the equivalent um, of a lateral line in their uh, beaks that is able to sense the electro, uh, the electrostimulation or the electro um, signals coming from uh, animals. And so the researchers suggest the glow may be to reduce their visibility to predators, as is the case with some crustaceans, who are also biofluorescent. If there is an ecological function, it likely has to do with interactions between platypuses and other species, such as predators. However, there is a possibility that the trait has little or no ecological function. Only further research can tell, Olson said. So basically, they don't know yet. (laughs) And it might just be a quirk because platypuses are literally just a collection of weird quirks bundled together in one odd little animal. (laughs) They are just very, very weird little guys. And so this is almost not even mentionable. And so, though, however, this does uh, show that uh, having 
found this out, uh, it means that the trait has now been found in all three major mammalian lineages, placental mammals, marsupials, and monotremes, which suggests it may be an ancestral trait of a common ancestor of all three groups. Our discovery of this trait reminds us that the natural world is still full of mysteries, Olson said. Hopefully our work shines a light on this unique and near-threatened species. Okay, and so speaking of weird animals, let's talk about the African crested rat. Monogamous poisonous rats that are also really adorable. They, I, I promise, they look more like fuzzy porcupine skunk hybrids than your typical, you know, brown or black rat found here in America. I mean, personally, I don't have anything against rodents. I kind of find them adorable, but I know that other people don't. But these guys, I promise, they're really adorable. Unfortunately, you don't want to touch them. <laughs> it's, it's, they're, they're another example of one of those animals that it's like, so adorably cute and so terribly deadly. Why, nature, why? <laughs> um, and so, as, as noted, the rats may be adorable, but they pack a fearsome punch in the fact that they slather their fur in a deadly toxin. The toxin is so strong that just a few milligrams can stop an elephant in its tracks or even kill a human, according to research from the University of Utah. Their skunk-like appearance is an advertisement that they are not afraid to be eaten. When they sense a threat, the hairs on, the ba on their back stand up, giving them a prominent crest, for, of course, gives them their name, and it allows the rabbit-sized animals to be even more straightforward in their advertisement that they are a danger. Biologist Sarah Weinstein from the University of Utah, along with her colleagues from the National Museums of Kenya and the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, have confirmed the method used by the animals to source the poison, which they extract from a rather obvious source, the poisonous arrow tree. Um, so yeah, um, this is a tree that, um, you know, people in the area also get poison from to put on arrows. So hence poison arrow tree. Uh, and so the plant contains, um, cardenaloids, uh, which are toxic comp compounds like those found in monarch butterflies, uh, which actually get their, um, cardenaloids from milkweed and cane toads, which actually have a special gland that produces it. The animals chew the bark of the poisonous tree and then lick the poison onto their specialized hairs. The original paper describing this, though, used only a spe single specimen, and so the researchers wanted to go back and use a combination of camera traps and analyzing and observing captured spe specimens to further test the theory. The researcher the re their research not only confirmed the use of the tree to apply the poison, but also found that the animals are not solitary, as once was assumed, but rather monogamous and family-oriented, forming small units with their offspring. Thirty-five camera traps were set up in central Kenya between March and September 2018, though they weren't able to get a good handle on their movements as the rats move slowly through their environment. The paper actually states that in future, mapping their range and habitat preferences will require carefully designed and targeted surveys. But they did manage to capture 25 of the adorable little critters, which actually turns out to be a real feat as they're both rare and also notoriously difficult to trap. 
but like squirrels, they succumbed to the uh, dulcet aromas of fish or peanut butter. (laughs) The animals were sexed, weighed, and tagged, and samples were taken of feces, tissues, and hair. Now, the majority were then released, with the team being careful to treat the animals at all times in accordance with guidelines on ethical treatment of research subjects. They also wore thick leather gloves to avoid being accidentally poisoned. Now, ten of the rats were taken for further observation. A small abandoned cowshed apparently was used as a makeshift research center, and the researchers tried to recreate a mini-habitat for the creatures. They then gathered 447 daytime and 525 nighttime hours of observations. They're herbivores, essentially rat-shaped little cows, Weinstein explained in a University of Utah article. They spend a lot of time eating, but we also see them walk around, mate, groom, climb up the walls, sleep in the nest box. They were actually also lucky to have captured a male and female from the same area. We put these two rats together in the enclosure, and they started purring and grooming each other, said Weinstein, which was a big surprise, since everyone we talked to thought that they were solitary. I realized we had a chance to study their social interactions. They also supplied the rats with branches from the poison tree. Interestingly, they didn't seem all that uh, willing to really be interested in the... uh, branches, but a few individuals did chew on the branches, combine the mush with saliva, and then lick it onto their specialized hairs. And so, in the end, the lack of interest in the wood suggests that the poison might last for an extended period, not that they don't use it. Um, and this has actually been observed on poison arrows using the, ex- using the same extract. And so the team wants to further explore the population to make sure it's healthy and doesn't need to be conserved further and to raise awareness about these cute little creatures so that people know about them and don't accidentally get poisoned by them, but also don't accidentally mess with them. Um, And so, yeah, they're really adorable, I promise. Even if you don't like rodents, well, if you don't like rodents, if you like rabbits um, and hedgehogs and uh, the idea of a furry porcupine, then you will probably like them, I promise. Okay, so uh, that is all the stories we have for tonight. However, you can go to evidencebasedarata.com where I have a bonus story there about an Egyptian love curse. And um, I didn't want to talk about it tonight because it's a little too racy for this early in the evening. Um, And so if you go there, you can uh, read about that and uh, view a picture and of the papyrus uh, on which there is an illustration. And uh, you can also, I've also told you what the Pompeian graffiti uh, says. And there's actually a link to a page where you can find a study where they compared uh, the graffiti found in Pompeii to graffiti found in San Francisco in 1965, which I think is fascinating. Um, And they've got a little... uh, little um, insert table there and you can just read and it's really interesting to see how little things have changed uh, since ancient Roman times. Um, And so, yeah, 
that's a good way to start the new year, I think. <laughs> so once again, uh, happy new year. Let's hope that this year is uh, better than last year. Um, because if it isn't, I will just start crying uncontrollably. So it's got to be better than last year. <laughs> so, um, yep. Yeah. Uh, that is all I have for tonight. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.